Welcome to Open Studio, Conversations on Art, brought to you by Graves and Mallet Art Solutions. I'm your co-host, Denise Mallet. In this podcast, my partner, Leslie Graves, and I explore the amazing world of visual arts through the lens of art lovers, just like you, by sharing extraordinary stories, conversations, and interviews with artists, collectors, gallery owners, curators, and more all of whom have embraced visual arts by changing lives to establishing legacies, as well as building world-renowned collections. Today on Open Studio, Leslie and I sit down for a conversation with artist Rashawn Rucker, a local and national Emmy Award winner for documentary photography, a Harvard University Maynard Fellow, Black Enterprise Magazine Modern Man Honoree, 2019 Kresge Fellow, and an artist with the distinction of having his artwork featured in the HBO productions, Random Acts of Flyness, and the documentary, 12th and Claremont. Rashawn shares how sixth grade was a pivotal point in defining his love for art and finding what he calls his tribe. Why his living room has become his de facto studio, how reading inspires his work, and the importance of using his platform to speak to the marginalization of the black man. Wow, what an episode we have for you when we return. Welcome back to Open Studio Conversations on Art. Um, Leslie and I are here today with the amazing artist, Rashawn Rucker. And gosh, it's so much to add to this, but I don't want to stall because we only have so much time in our interview to give his long introduction of all of his wonderful accomplishments. Um, but we'll get that in because we're going to squeeze it into the interview today. Leslie, as usual, we've been on occasion having the opportunity to do some fun facts. And on those fun facts, uh, we try to find out a, a little bit of investigation around some things about you that are always nice and sensitive and great. But uh, Leslie, what's our fun fact today with Rashawn? Well, two of your friends did not call me back. So <laughs> I had to just go with facts that are in the public domain. Rashawn is a proud alum of North Carolina Central University and a proud and enthusiastic member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity, a photojournalist with the Detroit Free Press for 16 years, a local and national Emmy Award winner for documentary photography, a Harvard University Maynard Fellow, a Black Enterprise Magazine Modern Man Honoree, the 2019 Kresge Art Fellow, and Rashawn, which I thought was just fascinating, had his artwork featured in the HBO production of Random Act of Flyness and the documentary 12th and Claremont. 2019 ended with a bang for Rashawn. He had a sellout exhibition of his show, um, American Ornithology at M Contemporary Gallery in Ferndale, Michigan, and also appeared at Art Basel. And so much of his work. So, Sean, Rashawn, we are so Sold happy that you're here. <laughs> Sold it all. Sold it all. We're so happy that to have you in our midst, and we're so excited about this podcast interview with you. So, Denise, what's your first question for this 
gentlemen, we did we did the interview before the interview. <laughs> yes. So, so now we're trying to capture all of that and pull it back together. My first question for you is how let's part two part. What do you think about 2019 and like this amazing career launch and what should we expect for 2020? 2019 was not what I was expecting. I wasn't really expecting to leave the free press. They offered a buyout and I decided to take it really just to try to get a job as a middle school art teacher. It was nothing about really kind of launching my own (laughs) art career. It was like, I just, that's all I ever wanted to be was a middle school art teacher or a high school art teacher. It was, that was my goal growing up. And, you know, um, right when I left the free press, I had a meeting with Melanie Shar, who's the curator and gallerist and owner of M Contemporary. And she said, um, I love your work. Come by, let's meet. And when we got there, we were talking and she was like, I had one of my artists fall out in October. Do you want to take this spot? And I was like, sure, why not? I said, I haven't had a show in like five years, a solo show. And I think the last one before that was 2014 at Mary Grove, a printmaking show, and it sold out. And she was like, well, let's try it. She said, let's try it here. And so that kind of was the beginning of everything kind of taking off because shortly after I found out I won the Kresge Award for drawing. Wow. Uh, the show sold out in Contemporary. Then uh, Numdi Contemporary Miami took my work to Prism and it sold out there. And so 2019 has been uh, incredible but crazy because I'm trying to now keep up with... Uh, 2020 and 2020 started off the same way i'm showing now with uh print austin which is like their huge printmaking festival in texas showing at a uh, lincoln pen gallery and i was sold to work that's there uh that show was curated by jamal barber who was a printmaking professor in georgia and it was some amazing printmakers in that show latoya hobbs who's getting all this national recognition she just won the joan mitchell foundation award wow. So that, I mean, it was great to be in that show. And uh, I'm in the new show and Mark Walsh is coming out uh, February 14th. And I'm just super excited because that show is going to feature work from Charles White and Whitfield Lovell, who are like my two biggest inspirations in art. And then I'm in Art on Paper Fair in New York doing the Armory, which is I'm cranking out work for that. And shortly after that, uh, at the Scarab Club, they'll be holding the show called... uh, the Power of the Press, which Ooh. is Signal Returns, huge printmaking show, where they're showing printmakers from around the country, and I'll be in that show as well. And then we got some things coming up with MoCAD and some things in, back in New York again. And in September, I have a solo show at uh, Nomdi Contemporary in Miami. Tentatively, it'll be birds, but it's more about migration and flocks of birds this time. Mm. So tentatively, I'm running around the concept of a contemplation of flight. Beautiful. So you have such a huge schedule, and you are not a Xerox machine. You are actually a creative, and everything is an original idea. How do you keep it fresh? What's a day in the life of artist Rashawn Rucker? So typically, I'm up at 6.30. I got two sons. My wife is getting up. We're trying to get the kids ready. And I typically take them to school and then she goes off to work. And so I try to work during the times they're at school because then usually I start making dinner when they're, when after I pick them up from school. And it's 
a little bit of a circus act because my oldest son is autistic, so he has very ritualized things he wants to do. Like, we have to get fries every day after school, no matter how long the line is at McDonald's. So it might take an hour. And so I come home, I try to get dinner, and then I try to work again. And sometimes it's always a point of contention with my wife because I'm always working till like, 2 and 3 in the morning. Mm. And she'll be like, when are you coming to bed? And I'll be like, oh, my God, I got to finish this. So most nights I never make it to bed. I just fall asleep <laughs> in the living room because I don't have a studio. Mm-hmm. I work on the in the living room, which is, I work in the living room so much that my wife made me buy a couch to put in another room that became the de facto living room because the <laughs> living room became my studio because there's like ink and paint and stuff everywhere. She's like, oh my God, this is so annoying. People come in here and the first one they walk into is like your de facto studio. <laughs> so at some point this year, me and Tyler and Sawyer are looking to get a studio together. We have found a space and then kind of gentrification kind of got us. <laughs> and they were like, oh, we got other plans for this building now. So now we're starting to look again. But uh, trying to get away and it's hard to get away and do that type of work. I mean, I was pretty much working 12 hours a day for that solo show. I mean, some of those big pieces, uh, that one, the, the largest piece in the show, which was five feet by four feet, the rooster that was called King Strut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that was like over 220 hours of drawing itself. Wow. So wow. it's just a lot of work into it. And then I'm dealing with like carpet tunnels. And so some days I want to work and then I don't work because my hands are hurting from all the drawing. Oh, so I put a little, I that. put a little sleeve on or like after the show, I didn't draw for a couple of weeks because I had some calluses and I was waiting for them to wow. heal up from all the drawing and then, so I took a little pause, and then I started for Prism, like, a couple weeks later to give myself, you know, some room to breathe. But there's not much time for me to do uh, any other type of work, because people always say, do you do commissions? I'm like, not really, because I never have time. Right. You're selling out, so that's always, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good, good problem That's have. a good problem to have. My, my, I'm going to say my biggest issue now is I posted my frat jacket and, like, that I designed and drew by hand. And, <gasps> And, like, now I get emails every day. Do you design fraternity? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't design any Greek paraphernalia for anybody. Yes, yes, I wish yes, people yes. would stop asking me. <laughs> it was just one of those things where I'm older. I don't really wear a lot of paraphernalia. So I wanted something that was, like, a legacy piece sure. that I could pass down to my kids Look, if you something. ever make one, make one for me. Right? <laughs> so oh, I get, that's, like, my biggest thing now is just telling saying no. Right. And that was one of the first things they told us at Kresge, like saying no is a form of self care. Wow! So I'm starting I to that. I'm starting to learn that like just just because there's so many opportunities, you can't say no, you can't say yes to everything, right? Because there's not enough time. So, so with that, with time limitations and and pieces that you said had 200 plus hours, when do you have those moments of inspiration? I mean, what inspires you to you know take this path of um, with the you mentioned um, the contemplation of flight. I mean, is it moments where you meditate on that? Do you just sit back and it just hits you? I do a lot of things, but I read a lot. Okay. Like it, it's it's funny because um, you know we're starting Black History Month, and one of the things that jumped out to me was uh, the mis- miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. And that really came to me because he's a member of Omega Psi Phi. We were always posting stuff about him. And I read that book in college, so I went back to read it. And then when I talked about contemplation of flight, you know, meaning moving to a better place, you know, that type of thing with migration. 
but it was a quote he had and I kind of stuck it in my phone because I was thinking about it and it was a quote basically said if, if you can control a man's thinking you don't have to worry about his actions mm. and then I was because wow. my work always deals with conditioning and it's all about that like he basically said if you teach somebody to go to the back door they'll bother you and make you build a back door just so they can go through it because you've conditioned them all in their lives to go to be this way and be in this space and a lot of my work is about that just about people putting you in a, a you know in a designated area for you to live you know so, it's like psychological homelessness can we can we springboard into american ornithology and the impetus behind that because that was a fascinating show i loved your artist statement can you just tell our listening public about uh, the thoughts behind that well, they were, they were some of the, you know, those same similar thoughts about just, um, you know, like I said, psychological homelessness, homelessness and kind of like mental gentrification, like always being somewhere that you're supposed to not be, being in a place that wasn't made for you, but being assigned to that place. And uh, that came about just thinking about, you know, conditioning in black men and a lot of people ask me well you never do women and I'm like well I'm not a woman so I can't pretend to like act like I know what it, what the problems of black women are because I don't know and so I just speak to to black men and and the thing was about conditioning a lot of it just comes from like my family and talking to grandparents and I was telling somebody yesterday and like oh my god I never thought about that and I was like you know, I don't know how to swim because my grandmother was not able to go to a pool as a black person. Mm-hmm. So then she didn't teach her kids how to swim, and then they didn't teach me how to swim. And I just put my sons in swimming lessons because I just woke up one day and was like, you know, the buck stops here. Like, I'm not yes. going to let them be afraid to swim because, you know, because they want to take every vacation at a water park or a beach. And we were at the beach this summer in Virginia. And I was panicked the whole time. My wife knew how to swim, and she was out there with the boys, and I'm yelling from the sand, yes. you got too far, you're out too far. But that's conditioning because I don't know how to swim because nobody in my family learned how to swim. Right. And so the work became about that, just having somebody put limitations on you before you could even really live. Right. And the pigeon just became a way to kind of de facto talk about that because... I wanted to use a marginalized animal to talk about a marginalized mm-hmm. community. And when I started doing the research, realizing that pigeons came over here around the same time as slaves, they're not native to America either. They were bought here by Europeans who just, I guess, just wanted to have pigeons. And they were in some forms of servitude because people were using them as messaging pigeons and racing pigeons. And, you know, and they kept them in these coops, similar how they kept us in slave ships and on plantations and you know, it's funny, I tell somebody, I said, if you look at how they build a pigeon coop, some of them are tall with these little individual cells. I said, it almost like a housing project. Mm. You know, wow. it's that type of thing. And I said, so that's kind of where the pigeon came into play with just this whole thing about these two, these two species, humans and birds, that have been designed to be kept in a place. And so that's kind of the thought behind that work. And you said pigeons are not migratory birds. Yeah, they're one of the few birds that's not migratory. And the reason they're not migratory is because they were displaced. And so mm. in birds, if you're taken away from where your home is at, then you no longer have a place to go back to. You don't know that there's a better place to go. And so they don't have a migratory gene anymore to go back to. So it's kind of like us. We've been displaced. Yes. And it's like pigeons have done what we've done. We just adapted to where we live.
Yeah. Pigeons have adapted to living here. And they've, you know, and in some places it's weird because I say, you know, when I talk about black men, I say a lot of times only people, only time people see pigeons in American cities, populating the streets, they everywhere. And if you read about it, most of their food is like scraps and handouts. Mm. And so I think about how people think about us. They just think all oh, black people, we out here living on the system and trying to get over and, and doing these things. Like it was a very kind of stark wow. comparison when you thought about it. And you know, the thing about migration, I tell people that's, that's amazing is birds migrate in packs for a reason because it's less stressful. Mm. It's 70% more stressful for a bird to fly by itself when they're in a pack. They get lifted by all the flapping of the wings and get into the updraft of the wind. And so what they do is they change who's ever in the lead position because that's the hardest position. Mm. And I always think about that like it's order for us to move as a people. You kind of have to move together. Yes. But we always seem to move singularly and never together. So it, it's all in that kind of vein of thinking about. And the definition of migration is literally to move to a better place, mm. whether it be job, money, or wherever. So it just struck me because I think I told somebody the, one of the things that started that was I have a cousin and we were talking one day and I was like I was living in the city at the time and I said let's go eat and he's like where are you going I said I'm going to go to P.F. Chang's and we were driving out there and we got toward it and he was like where are we at and I'm like Livonia he's like I never been to Livonia and I was like damn man you're 38 years old you ain't never been to Livonia and he literally was like I don't have no reason to go to Livonia I'm like you got every reason just because you alive yeah just get in the car and drive like but that's because you've been conditioned to yes. stay in your zone that's right. And to not explore and not see things that, you know, that you also have access to. Yes. And I got that kind of from my grandmother because she was kind of one of those rebellious black women. To this day, my grandma was like, I just get in the car and drive. I don't even know where I'm going. I just get in the car. <laughs> and she was like, I just drive all day. And she's 84 years old. She'd be like, I'd be all the way up the whole counties and stuff <laughs> just because I want to see what's out there. And I'm her. like, you shouldn't live in boxes like that. Or you meet people in the city and they literally will tell you, I never been to the east side. I'm like, why? Well, everything I know is on the west side and all my places is over here. I'm like, yes. it don't really matter where your place is at. Just explore. But on, on that note, please share with our listening audience the story you told during your artist talk at M Contemporary Gallery when you had the opportunity to go to... Oh, Ghana? to Africa. Yeah, to, to Ghana. <laughs> and that was one of the things I was telling them. Like, one of the biggest regrets of my life was I had a chance to go to Ghana for six months in this art exchange program where Norcon Central would send a professor and their best art student to the University of Kamasi in Kamasi, Ghana. And they yes. would send their professor and one of their best art students. And I got chosen to go with my professor. And I was telling my grandma, I was so excited about it. It was like all expensive paid and blah, blah, blah. And my grandma was like, you don't know nobody in Africa. Why are you going over there? And she like really... Freaked me out, her and my mom. And so I didn't go because I got panicked about it. Like, and my grandma was like, she literally was like, you go over there and get sick. We ain't got no money to get you back. And it was like (laughs) that same like thing where I was like, oh my God, I let fear interrupt everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did get to learn from the professor that came over, but it wouldn't, it's not the same as living in Ghana and immersing myself in the culture. No, this is is a different different grandmother. grandmother. (laughs) This grandmother is my mother's mom. Other is my dad's mother, and but I, when you say that now, I think about it. I also think about their history. My mother's mother 
was born and raised in South Carolina, Jim Crow time. Yes. Was spit on and all this. Other she never moved from the South. She moved to North Carolina, and that's where my mother was born. My dad's mother, same thing, was born there, but she moved to Detroit in the late forties. Went to school, got a job as a social worker, so she kind of broke out. Yes. Good. So she was very much in that vein of like, do whatever you want to do, live your life. And my other grandmother, and as I can understand both origins, because she's like, oh my God, these people been on our head forever she was more about safety yes yeah. so in that sense i understood it you know and in my mother is like that my mother's a college educated woman but she never left the south either and i remember the same thing when i went when i first was thinking about going to college i only applied to hbcus that's all i knew both of my parents went to hbcus and i applied to morehouse north Carolina central howard hampton elizabeth city state so i wanted to go to morehouse i got in i had the grades and my mom was like that's too far. You're going to be down there. And, blah, blah. and it was like, you get freaked out. Sure. And then she was like, and it costs a lot. And I'm looking, I'm like, wow, this is expensive. I was telling somebody yesterday, I said, I didn't even know we was poor until I had to fill out a FAFSA. And I saw how much money my parents <laughs> made. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, my parents were school teachers, but they were probably making like $18,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And I think Morehouse, even back then, was like twenty grand a year right. for out of state. And my parents was like, boy, you can go to Central for five years for $20,000 if you stay in state. <laughs> yeah. And so that's yes. why I ended up. I don't regret it now because I pledged there. I had a great time. Sure. But it's just like, I think just... Our community, we let fear like set in on us so much that you get scared to try to. And it's about what Carter G. Wilson was saying. It's like you're so comfortable in this bad space that you don't want to go seek something else because it's what you know. And we've been told that all our life. Put your head down, go to work. Don't rock the boat. Put your head down, go to work. I heard that forever. Mm -hmm. And there's people all around you getting promoted who not even qualified because you're scared to apply for a job because you're like, I just... I just want to do my work and put my head in my computer screen and whatever and other people going for it. That's right. Wow. And so I think, you know, this is just a message to fly, to just go for it. I love it. You know, and, and do what you need to do. Wow. Uh, on that note, what a great pause for us. We're going to take a quick break. Audience, please stay with us. We'll return in a moment with, our, with Rashawn Rucker. Welcome back to Conversations on Art. Uh, Leslie and I are sitting with artist Rashawn Rucker. It has been an absolute treat. And our offline conversations, we have to get back because they're they're just so robust that we so we can finish up our wonderful interview. Um, first question out the gate, I'd love to ask this of artists. At what point did you feel comfortable calling yourself an artist? Maybe in the sixth grade, seventh grade, something like that. Um, So I've always drawn probably since I was like five or six since I could remember. And I remember how I started drawing. I had a couple cousins who were like really good artists. And I always kind of envied them. And, you know, it seemed like it ran in our family. But I'm the only one to kind of take it like kind of far, far. Yes. But um, it really started because my mother could draw a little bit. And so I would always tell my mom, you know, Oh, I want you to draw because I, I love professional wrestling. I grew up with it in the South. And so I love Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. Those are my guys. And so I asked my mom, like, can you draw Dusty Rhodes for me? 
and she would draw them and cut them out like a paper doll. Yes. Because back then there was really no wrestling figures. They had all this toys and not wrestling. It. So after a while, I think she got tired of it. I was like, I'm going to show you how to draw this yourself. Yes. So she bought me some paper and then I would just start drawing them and that kind of became my love. And then like outside of wrestling, then I started getting influenced by comic books. I had an uncle named David who I love dearly still around. Um, he would take me to the comic store. He was a big comic book reader. And so then it was more like, you know, Jim Lee and Stan Lee and, you know, all, Jack Kirby, all these different comic book artists. And that's all I was drawing back then was, like, comic book stuff, wrestlers. And when I went to middle school, it was a school that we walked to, and uh, I had an art teacher, Miss uh, Miss Williams, Kathy Williams. She was the first black teacher I had, and she was the art teacher. And she stayed out to school with me for, like, an hour almost every day for three years because she told my parents, you know, Tell my mom's like he really talented, you know, and I see something in him, and you know, in that first year she stayed with me, I won in the the county Christmas card contest, oh, wow. and so my Christmas card was like the Christmas card they sent out. <laughs> so what it was grade like was that? I was probably in the sixth or seventh yeah. grade. So at that point, I was like, I'm an artist. Like I kind of knew right. this is what I was gonna do. But like I said, I wanted to be in middle school or high school because I think those are people who had affected me so much at that point mm. was Miss Williams and. Similar to, I would say, CCS, not on that level, but they had an O'Connor School of Arts and they had a place called the Sawtooth Center, which was probably more keen to like what the BBAC is or one of those places where they teach. They have shows, but they also teach workshops. Yeah. And that's where all the talented kids went. And in the summers, I would go there. Like my grandparents and parents started saving money for me to go because it was a lot of money. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is my tribe. This is where all these. It's all the weird kids that who can paint and draw. Because it's weird when you in school and you drawing and painting and doing that stuff. You think you're like the only kid, like you by yourself. Because you're kind of an outsider. You're not, you're not the quarterback on the football team. You're not this. You're like the weird kid that's walking around with a sketchbook everywhere drawing stuff. And um, so I kind of knew from back then. And then my Uncle Leo, who's a established artist in North Carolina, like Leo Rucker, he would uh, teach me a lot. And he's done so much work. Like, he's done so many commissions and, you know, big projects and solo shows and museums down there. So he would teach me sometimes in the summer, and they had a program called Artiva. Most people don't know this. I'm sharing, like, one of those weird facts that y'all yes. like. So in this Artiva program, you would basically become an apprentice for somebody for the summer. They would pick out talented kids, and you do that. So I spent two summers as an apprentice to a stained glass artist. So if you go to my hometown in Winston-Salem and you go past churches, it's like I painted Jesus on these stained glass. <laughs> when you go into the food court in the, in the mall, like I painted all the stained glass in the food court. Like my name is still on it. It's like when I go in there, I'm like, I painted all those tacos. And I love it. I love and so I really learned how to do stained glass well for like two years. But that was not my thing. It was just like sure. something cool and it was a job. Mm -hmm. I think I was getting paid like literally $5.65 or something an hour mm -hmm. to do this. And I think it ended because there was like, you know, some soldering and welding you have to do with stained glass. And I burned myself. It popped in my eye. And I went to the hospital. I was like, oh, shit, I'm done with this. Like, <laughs> it was like, because I was leaning down, like, soldering something. It popped right in my eye. And I was like, oh, my God, I was blinding myself doing things. And I was like, never in the chemicals. It was like, because people don't realize. So you're not painting with colors. You're painting with clove oil. 
So if I'm painting your face, I would just get a glass that looked like the skin tone you have and everything else would be painted with clove oil. The shadows and the details. So if you're painting this black Jesus, the glass is brown. You're just painting the details in. And so I thought it was cool. It's like when I go into children's hospital, there's big stained glass that I painted. And after that, I went to to college and um, I still really, I knew I was going to be some, like I said, an art teacher or something, but I never thought it would get to this point because in high school, my uh, art teacher, Mr. Idol, Anthony Idol, he would call me Mr. Big Star. He was like, you start these amazing drawings and then you never finish them. And so my (laughs) senior year, (laughs) he actually wrote that in my high school yearbook. So my senior year, he had a back room where he kept clay and the kiln was back there. He would put me in that room doing art class. Like I couldn't sit with the other kids because he would tell me, be like, these other kids, they're not going to be artists. They don't care nothing about art. This is an elective class for them. So I don't want you around them. So you go back there, you do your work by yourself. That way I know you finish your projects wow. and you're not, you know, distracted by your friends. Wow. So I got so much work done on my portfolio, went off to, you know, North Carolina Central, where I met uh, Asha DeBella, who's a famous Ethiopian artist. He became my drawing professor. And um, it's funny because he was in all these, like, African art history books and stuff. And nice. he would give me, like, Bs in every drawing class. And I'd be like, I'm the best drawer in here. Like, why are you, do- <laughs> you know, why are you doing this? And he'd be like, Chiefy, you're not doing as well as you could be doing. And blah, blah, blah. And I never, like, I swear this man didn't know my name until, like, three years ago. He just called me Chiefy. <laughs> And it was like, but he would say my name to my mom and dad, which I sure. thought was strange. Like, sure. he'd be like, well, Rashawn has to do this, 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 and this. And it wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago, I was talking to uh, Jade, Anji, and I was telling him the story. And he said, you know, in Africa, chief is a name of endearment. That's what oh. they call people they really appreciate. Yeah, that's so he was like, it was, a, he had a respect and a love for you. Oh, and so when I saw him a couple of years ago, he was like, me giving you an A and telling you everything you drew was great was not going to help you. That's he was right. like, all I would have did was stunt your growth like in college. You would have never pushed yourself to be better. Talk about a teacher, huh? Yeah, I mean, you run into, I mean, I was fortunate to run into like five or six of those type of teachers who who really kind of saved me. Like they, they pulled you from the abyss like, and it started with that middle school teacher because I mean, God, there's so many friends and, like, family I had incarcerated as my age. And I'm like, there's no telling what I would have been doing if I didn't, you know, clamp onto art so early. That's wonderful. And was just completely enthralled with it. Like, I was drawing so much. My grandparents and mom were like, go outside like the other kids. Like, you're in the house all day. And all I was doing was drawing. Like, that's all I thought about. That's all, you know. And it was funny because... uh, you were talking about things that inspire you and those type of things. It's like, I thought about that with Kobe Bryant. Like, I was never a huge fan of Kobe Bryant because I was a Pistons fan. My dad was a Detroit guy. I was an Isaiah Thomas guy. That's right. A big Pistons fan. But when I watched the tributes to him and I thought about him, like, it made me want to push harder because I was like, clearly this is what people loved him for was he had this ability to, like, try to master his craft and, like, Mm -hmm. process things. And I was like... Listening to that made me know, like, it's always another gear yes. that you can, like, go into. Yeah, that's powerful. And it made me, I was just like, man, like, that's what I was doing when I was a kid. Like, I was just obs- obsessed with it. And I'm still that way. And it's like, but I just looked at him and was like, you can always dig a little deeper and push further. 
because somebody was asking him in the interview, did he have a plan B? And he said, no, I knew I was going to make it to the NBA because I was working that hard. Like I knew I would never be denied because I put myself in a position where I couldn't be denied. And it was like, you know, and then listening to LeBron, and he was talking about how they were on the Olympic team, and he was like, they were all together. And he was like, from the first day they were there, he was like, Kobe was up at 5 in the morning lifting weights and running, everybody else was in the bed. And he was like, mm-hmm. by the end of the time, by like the middle of their trip, he was like, everybody was up with Kobe. See. Because they realized that he had a, another level of dedication to the game. Wow. And I was thinking, I'm like, you know, to get where you got to get, that's what it takes. Like, there's no... There's no real secret. I tell young artists that all the time. I get DMs and messages all the time. Like, I'm trying to get where you at. What's the secret? Ain't no damn secret. You just got to work hard. <laughs> like, that ain't right. no secret. That's right. That's just, you just got to do the work. Got to put it in. You know, you know, it's like hearing Tyler Perry the other day. He was like, don't wait for somebody to set the table. Just build a table. Wow. It's like, you just got to do the work. And eventually, you know, as my grandma always said, she'd say, you know, time going to reveal it. You know, if you put in the work, somebody going to recognize it later. You just do what you have to do. You know, my grandma, she's great. I could write a book about her saying, you know, because I would get frustrated about things in college when I was trying to be an artist and this ain't working out. This ain't working out. She would be like, you make one step and God will make two. Like, you just mm, keep, keep going. you know. Yeah. Know she would always tell me, you know, he got a way of slow walking you down. Like, it'll get your time will come That's right. when it's your time. That's right. And so I always took, because I think young people think it's like a secret to the art game. Like, who's your connection? I'm like, ain't no connection, man. <laughs> it's like, no the connection doing is this. like 12 years of, like, just 12 hours a day for years of drawing. Mm-hmm. And so I hate when I read things and it's like, oh, Deborah Roberts and all these people came out of nowhere. No. Man, this lady been making collages for 30 years. Ain't no, no nowhere. Yes, Ain't no, no overnight success. You're just learning about You're just them. learning about them. They yeah. just came into your purview. Mm-hmm. So that's it's like, that's the thing I always try to leave with young artists. I'm like, it's just the work. You just got to do the work. Well, one of the last questions, and on that same line of thinking, that uh, one of a few maybe last questions is, what advice would you give your younger self? You know, young young artists come to you, DM, whatever it is. If you look back now at your, you know, let's say 21-year-old self or 20-year-old self, what advice would you give them? I think about this all the time. I think if I could, you know, go back in the way back machine, <laughs> I probably would just, like, take things, I wouldn't say more serious, I would value things more. Because mm. I think even when I was in college, I was working hard, but I could have worked harder. Mm-hmm. I could have worked a lot harder. Because I remember, like, the year, the semester after I pledged, I didn't go to school, I didn't go to class. The next mm-hmm. semester, the whole semester, mm-hmm. I was on the plot, cooking hot dogs with the bros, <laughs> listening to Atomic Dog, <laughs> yelling at the AKs and the Deltas that walked by, right. and hanging out with the bros, and mm-hmm. just didn't go. And I remember, like, the dean came to my dorm room one day. The dean. Wow. And he was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? You're too talented to be doing this. Ooh. And um, he was like, so we're not going to fail you. Because he was like, you pretty much should get all Fs. And he was like, that would just kill your GPA. I was in National Honor Society, Golden Key. He was like, you're just trying to tear, it up, just trying to tear everything up. Like, 
Like he, I remember his correct words. He was like, you just want to tear your drawers off and set them on fire. Like, you're you going to go all the way. He was like, you're going to go all the way with this. And he was like, so what we're going to do is we're going to give you all incompletes. And you're going to take all these classes over next semester. Ain't going to be That's no rough. extra credit. Ain't going to be no, I'm going to run and draw five things and turn it in. Because he's like, you ain't been to class. Yeah. And he was like, and I told you this because he had forewarned me about this. Mm-hmm. He was like, "Don't play it; it's just gonna mess everything up." And I was like, oh, "I want to did be it the, anyway." Yeah, I want to be the bruh. That's all <laughs> I was thinking about. It was like, and so I did it. But it's one of those things where, I, like, I think I just wish I would have valued the time more. Mm-hmm. That I would have not been on the plot so much and went to class and not yes. been taking road trips to other chapters and just sure, you know, because sure. I think back now you think back about it, you're like. Damn, I spent all that money for a semester of school. I didn't even go to class. But now I'm paying for the semester. <laughs> you shouldn't go to college until you're 30. I mean, you, I think people need to get all that playfulness out of them. That's a big responsibility to put on a 17 or 18 year old. It is. What do you want to do career wide? Pick a major, settle down. You've never lived on your own, and now you have to do it. And everybody's not prepared. I mean, fortunately, I was, and out of fear, because I knew my father would kill me. But everybody, that's a big deal. And the same thing, I'm saying that as somebody who actually values school, because I remember, like, when I got inducted to the National Honor Society, and I said, my mom was like, he was never this good a student in high school. And I was like, well, high school was free. That was literally what I told my mom. Yeah. was like, because <laughs> no, you started it. taking on loans and stuff. But my parents were like, look, bro, you got to file as an independent student. You got to get your own loans. We're not taking on no loans. And so I was paying for my own school. Right. And so I was more invested in sure. like my grades and stuff. But I still was having moments of like dumb decisions because I'm like 21 and yeah. doing what I want to do and partying and doing all this stuff. And, and I was the bossless of the chapter for two years. And mm-hmm. it's weird because I'm being serious about Omega and doing everything it deemed necessary to make it a great chapter. <laughs> but I wouldn't go into class. <laughs> you know? Here I sit as somebody on the SGA and student judiciary board. I ain't been in class in two months. And that's how the dean knew because he was like, what the? bro, you sitting on all these committees. You're an editor at the school newspaper. You ain't been to class. Until, like, you're doing everything but going to school. He was like, you're doing excellent. I was getting the student services, personal of the year awards and all this stuff, but I ain't been to class. And so it's just, it's one of those things. I wish I would have valued the time more. Yeah. But it's funny because I say that and then I hear people who... Like jet rocketed through school and was like, I wish I would have played more. Yeah. So it's like yeah, it's, it's kind of yeah, it's a balance. It's like a personal thing, and um, I'm still I'm still striving. Like as I sit here and look at this Ron Scarborough drawing because I know his work. Whenever I see it, we had a show together when I was like 12 years ago, mm-hmm. and um, I'm still striving to draw like him. Mm-hmm. He's still one of those people I look at and like, man, you know, he's like really unheralded, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think you gotta be you gotta be grateful for like the attention or any of the blessings you get because I see people every day on social media. I'm like, man, this guy in Taiwan only got 22 followers and this is some of the best art I ever seen. So it's like you gotta be right. grateful for any little light to shine, you know, your way. That's right. That's right. But I think it's it's how you live, you know. Like I kind of ended like my my grandma always tell me, you know, you can't plant corn and think you're gonna get tobacco. <laughs> So you gotta, you gotta. And I got that. Yeah, you know. She, <laughs> I know what you're saying. Yeah, she was like, you know, you gotta put out in the world what you want to get back. 
And so that's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm trying to always do is like do right by people, do the right things, you know, try to give a good example of myself to other people. Because I think about all that stuff. Like my grandmother was always, you know, feed me that type of wisdom, both of them. You know, even uh, even when I would leave, you know, jobs and go here or do there and move there and move there. Because I remember at one point I wanted to transfer to Duke. And I had did what they call an intertutional exchange program where I spent a semester at Duke. Mm-hmm. And I got all A's and B's. And I was like, should I go to Duke, you know, just because I'm in the black house? I mean, I can't That's survive right. at a, you know, a prestigious school because I was over in their art department killing it. Yes. And they were, uh, they were like, yeah, you should transfer and come over here. And, you know, and I remember my grandma, she said, you know, the grass look green, but you got to mow that yard too. <laughs> and she said, you're going to get over there. It's going to be some brown spots and some grubs. And she said, so you better just stay where you at. And so and I'm, I'm glad I did. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's those things where you just, you know, you take life lessons and you just try to be better. You know, and that was the other thing I appreciated about Kobe Bryant, like just learning more about him. It was like he took that negative spot in his life with the sexual assault case, and it's like he tried to grow from it and be better like every day. That's wonderful. So I think like this would just be a better place if we all took the bad parts and the mistakes and tried to, you know, grow and be better. That's right. You know, because every drawing ain't good. I don't, every drawing I make ain't great. Right. You know, I told my son that the other day, he's a phenomenal artist for a nine-year-old. Yeah. And he was ripping up sketchbooks and tearing the paper and crumbling it and throwing it in the garbage. And I can't do this and I'm sick of this. And I was like, dude, I'm still balling up paper at 42. That's right. You're going to be balling up paper for the rest of your life if you want to do this. You know, everything we do ain't perfect. I said, it just looked that way because when you go to a show, it looked good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You ain't seen all the missteps and the bad stuff that I done made and... You know, going to is curated is a word for a reason. Yes, it's been curated for you know optimal <laughs> quality. <laughs> you know, right. it's just like social media. It's like if I put all the bad stuff in my life on social media, they say, "Damn, he living, he living rough." Day to day, you know, they don't see the struggle. You only put your great parts up there, so it's like we only put my, I only put my great drawings up there. That's right. Only people that see the bad ones is the Thailands or Sydney's of the world. Who I might ship them to and say, "Hey, just take a look at this and see." You know how many times they didn't text me back and be like, bro, that's not the best I've seen you do. But what you great do feedback better. from some I mean, of your peers. We do it all the time with each other. Time on to be drawing something, you say, hey, Ruck, come look at this drawing because I know you can tell me what's wrong with it. I love that. I so love it's like, and then we hold each other, you know, we hold each other to a certain standard. You know, we're not going to let each other put bad work out. I love that. I done tore many a drawing and seeing Tylon paint over many a paint white and start all over again. So it's just, you know, you have to have the ability to learn and make mistakes and, you know, and know that hard work is the secret. That's right. What a life lesson. Yes, indeed. So, Leslie, I don't know if you have anything else before. You know, I I think between the podcast and off the mic, I have (laughs) learned so much (laughs) about this phenomenal artist. tell, Tell our listening audience how they can... Find your work, no more about you. You can find me on uh, Instagram at Rucker Arts, and I actually have a website now. It's RashawnRucker.com. I just updated it yesterday. Fantastic. I'm, I'm staying on top of that now. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you. I love it. Thank you for just being so open and sharing and uh Gosh, I know we are, are looking forward to more and exciting adventures of uh you, Mr. Rucker, so Thank good you. luck to you. Thank, Thank you. you. For your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
We would like to thank all our Open Studio sponsors. A special shout out to Stuart Skaggs and Kevin Crosby for the original music score they so generously provide for this podcast. And to today's guest, Rashawn Rucker. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast and stay connected for our upcoming and next episode of Open Studio, when Graves and Mallet have the pleasure of hosting art collectors and lovers just like you. Follow us on social media and visit our website at www.gravesmallet.art to learn more about our services, podcasts, and latest blogs. Until our next conversation, keep loving art.